0: From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents the Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting-edge technology, and the colored shavings. Welcome back to the Dairy Show, everyone. I'm of course Katie Schmidt, and as promised, this episode is a continuation of our last episode. So, what you're about to hear is the Q and A session. From the panel discussion related to how people are evaluating farm loans today. Again, this Q and A session is incredible and a fantastic extension of the previous episode. So, if you haven't listened to that one yet, stop this one now, go back and listen, and then come back because this is going to make way more sense if you have that background information. But without further ado, here's the Q A session.
1: And this might be an extension of where Sam made his final comment. Scenario where you have a farmer coming for a capital investment loan, large capital investment loan, under this two couple scenarios, one is a base access plan, and the other is a farmer who's in an area where the likelihood of that farm surviving to the next generation affecting resale value and demand uh, might be diminished. Has that affected how you value certain assets, such as facilities or cows or machinery or whatever it is? And does it affect, uh, when you you change the value of those assets, do they affect the creditworthiness of a producer?
2: I think certainly when, you know, value changes are going to, you know, those are going to come into balance sheet metrics that we measure, things like that. Certainly that's going to have an impact.
1: Are there certain assets that uh, the values change more dramatically than others? You know, I think
2: I think we see, uh, you know, just probably dialing into the assets that, that we look at for operating or working capital loans. You know, your feed your feed tends to go go up and down. We try to hold the values at Rabobank uh, at, a, at a pretty static level. We we tend to tie those to production and uh, you know repro and things like that, but. We try not to move those around too much, you know. Certainly, certainly, cow values come and go, but uh, you know, I think the feed, the feed components, tend to be the most dramatic uh, movers in the in the in the price spectrum.
3: The only other addition I'd make to that is certainly the cash flow uh, that that asset is, in uh, that purchase, that investment is going to be critical. Yeah, there is an impact on balance sheets, lost capital, uh, whether it's a new asset or uh, an existing farm that might not might be on its last generation having a plan and looking at the cash flow one of the things we really try and pay real close attention to is the liquidity the near cash Uh, so your liquid assets such as your savings and accounts receivable less your accounts payable and short-term debt that really does a a great job and in making sure you have the flexibility to survive some of those cycles.
4: So Dave, you started that question with a large capital investment, and uh, typically that that means facilities and then livestock to fill them, and uh, all of us are gonna get an appraisal. You know, So you're, you're gonna send an, an appraiser out there to um, evaluate that. They will do a market analysis to tell you whether or not that asset uh, is, has the value or, or doesn't have the value, and then, and then between the, the client and the financial institution, you'll have to make a decision on that. As an example, you go back three years ago, 200 to 600 cow dairies, their facility values decreased pretty substantially because nobody was buying them. If they were smaller than that, they may have had an alternative investment, or if it was larger than that, somebody may be able to expand it uh, on down the road. With a base or a quota program, uh, I think that's gonna have an impact on, on how appraisers are gonna take a look at what those values are, because can you expand that facility on down the road? I will tell you, at least I know Roger and I have talked about this, I assume Matt's gonna be in the same boat, but if we've got a client that wants to expand their dairy, we're gonna need some assurance from their buyer that they've got a home for that milk, that, that there is a market for it, because you don't want to put somebody into an investment and they've got, they're getting paid on the excess over that quota plan, which could be pretty detrimental.
1: Are there any rules of thumbs that you guys look at as far as, you know, I know we mentioned debt per cow, but as far as capital debt per per income or anything like that?
4: I've always had a real challenge with that because not every business is structured the same way. You know, every, when we're talking dairy farms, everybody has a dairy farm and a milking herd but what kind of land base goes with that? Are they cropping their own land? Uh, Do they own the machinery equipment? Do they own the manure handling equipment? And so every business looks a little bit different. I tend to look at it, on what the trend is for that business itself. There are some general metrics, you know, Roger mentioned one on on debt per cow, you can look at debt per hundred weight. There are really other financial metrics, uh, operating expenses as a percentage of revenue, for instance, that you can compare from operation to operation, but it really depends on the structure of that business as to how it's it's gonna perform, and that's why the trend for for that particular farm over time, I, I find to be much more valuable.
3: Couldn't agree more. And having it uh, trend o- over your, by yourself, and of course with other farms in the region, can help. We look at debt to EBITDA uh, as a as a good way to discuss where that particular farm is from an earnings standpoint. And EBITDA is earnings before interest, depreciation, interest, and in taxes. And so it's really a great tool uh, to use and and look at how that goes over time. Another one we look at is the number, the rule of thumb on debt service coverage ratio. So how well are you able to cover the debt payments on that farm over a, we use a blended 10-year term, and then we'll look at a three-year trend of that debt service coverage ratio if all the debt was on 10 years. And what it does is it allows to even out those ups and downs, the 2014s and the, and the other years since then that haven't been as strong. And if you put that together, I think you can get a better, more accurate view of what that farm's profitability can be over longer terms.
2: I think not to, not to be redundant, I'll kind of go at it a little different way. We, we look a lot at the, the frequency of cash flow, um, for example. Uh, when we kind of establish what a comfortable debt level is, it seems to me that as, if your money turns over more quickly, i.e. dairy farmers are getting paid twice a month, uh, a corn farmers getting paid once a year, the operations that have more frequent uh, turnover tend to support more debt. I, I think those those commodity and price structures tend to adjust more quickly in those businesses. So I think, I think a higher Turnover business tends to support more debt. A slower turnover business tends to support less debt. And that's why, you know, in crop farming, I, I typically see a debt load over 50% as starting to be troublesome. And uh, in, in dairies, uh, I think they can sustain a little bit more than that. You know, we do a lot of uh, uh, cattle uh, feedlot financing down our way as well. Another business where things turn over, you know, they're selling cattle every week. So th- those businesses tend to support a little more debt.
1: What is the number one reason why dairy farms are going out of business now? And when and why will that change?
2: I would say right at the moment, it, it's supply. You know, we, we have an oversupply of milk um, that's been created by a, a reduction in demand. You know, with, with the economy, I think it's all, all tied to the macro economy.
3: There's so many factors. So the number one is certainly, as Matt talked about there, but there's there's many other ones that can enter. It could be uh, health issues on the farm. Could be lack of next generation to take it over. Could be a really good farm that just doesn't. Uh, have the liquidity to get through this down uh, down cycle that they may be going through. But what you will look at is the number of dairy farms in the US over the last 70 years has gone down every year. So there's no stopping that trend. The beauty of our country is we're so darn efficient and the group of you in the room that are dairy farmers are some of the best. And that's one reason why our world position in dairy markets is starting to really improve is the efficiency of our dairy economy. So the number of farms will probably likely continue to decline, but the uh, overall efficiency of the U.S. dairy industry is very bright, I think uh, there's a lot of opportunities down the road, but it will be different, and it's competing with New Zealand and Europe and all the policies uh, that, that can affect some of that as well.
4: I think the number one reason is that costs are are higher than revenue. You know, costs have increased at a faster rate than revenue has, and uh, and that means margin compression. That's that's probably the number one reason that we see dairy farms exiting the business. A number of them because they didn't have another generation, and so that's why they, uh, they d- decided to exit the business. But I think it's uh, economics is the number one reason, but. As as Roger and Matt said, there's a whole host of of reasons as to why. What
1: is the uh, production uh, level in Wisconsin, or let's say the
4: United States, is concerned? How has that fluctuated here in the last few years? In both cases, it's gone up. We're producing more milk. Um, Milk per cow uh, has increased. Uh, Cow numbers have certainly increased in the last two years. They've just in the last couple months started to come back down a little bit off off of that, but uh, it's it's the milk production has increased. And why is that? It's because of genetic improvement. It's because of uh, feed quality. That um, the the, the, um, the livestock environment uh, has has certainly improved, and that's what's increased uh, milk production in the U.S.
0: I'm wondering from each of you how you view robotics. Uh, 20 years ago, financing milking parlors, we would look at 20-year amortizations and and write those loans for a longer period of time. But as things become more innovative, uh, how are you structuring those loans?
4: So, uh, robotics. You know why why have robotics come into, into play? And and in a lot of reasons, it's uh, been a labor issue that's that's driven the investment in robotics and. We've learned a lot uh, in robotic milking systems in uh, in the last several years as more and more of them uh, get built. So the amortizations aren't 20 years like they were when you built that milking parlor. It's uh, it's it's much shorter than that. But you should look to see them get paid back in, in uh, probably a seven to 10 year time period.
3: Yeah, the use of technology, uh, and I would put robotics in that camp, has really allowed a lot of different Business models to flourish, whether it's uh, a tie stall facility going into a robotic situation or a six million dollar hundred uh, cow rotary. There's still a lot of efficiency that can be gained, but as Sam said, being able to pay for that in a shorter time frame is is going to be needed just because of the rate of change is continuing to accelerate as well, and so that technology needs to be replaced with something better and newer 10 15 years at the most and i'll i'll just
2: try to try to boil that down a little bit there's always a new widget you know and i think that's that's the thing whether it be uh, you know a lot of processing and handling businesses there's always newer faster better equipment coming and i i think that's that's what drives maybe the shorter repayment period on structuring a loan for robotic would be just that, you know, when's the next widget going to come and what's that, what impact is that going to have on the value of of the equipment that I'm financing. For your top 10% of your producers, what's their profit per cow per year? That is a goal that you shoot for. And a second question with the production limits, What is something that you can do on the dairy that some of your top clients are doing to increase your net profit? Kind of my rule of thumb is I think I think we're crazy if we if we start shooting for more than a dollar to a hundred weight profit margins. That seems to be kind of the typical range for me. I would love to see some $7, eight dollar a hundred weight, like I saw in two thousand fourteen. Every year, I don't think that's reasonable, but you know I I think a dollar to uh, each side of break-even is, is kind of what I see as a typical range.
3: I talked to a couple of our dairy consultants before it came out and uh, they do a, a monthly dairy profit analyzer group of about hundred farms, and their goal on most of the top farms is to be over a thousand dollars profit per cow. And that's the top ten percent. They're not there. And obviously it was easier in twenty twenty when you had uh, very high profit coming from the federal government, but that isn't the case now, and that's been on a decline. Uh, They're more in the 850 range right now. But being able to compare your operation is, is more important than having a set number. The other part I would say is, What's unique? You may decide that genomic testing on your farm is the best option because you've got Jerseys and you can sell high-quality uh, Jersey semen uh, and or other replacements at a, at a high cost right now or a high profit right now. Uh, maybe there's uh, some other crops that you could raise rather than feeding them to the cows that is going to turn into some more profit. So there's just so many different options out there, but. Uh, from a dairy farm standpoint, some of the others is uh, uh, trying to maximize the milk quality. You can't afford to give up 25 cents a hundred anymore, so you gotta have ways to always maximize uh, that quality and, and have a milk handler that, that lets you do that.
4: I'll take on your second part of your question because I think um, you know, Roger and, and Matt hit on the first part, but. Uh, what top producers are doing, given current circumstances, that they're looking at that income statement figuring out, as Roger said, how can I enhance revenue? How can I reduce expenses? And there are no magic bullets. You're looking for pennies. You're looking at a half a percent change in an expense category. And that's how they're trying to glean a continued profitable future and, and be able to manage through the uncertainty that we're facing.
3: I did just uh, hear one other. Uh, we had several producers that got into the dairy beef. So they're rather than raise 100% replacements for uh, the herd, they're down in the 65-75% range and in, in breeding to beef. Surprisingly, the beef markets have held up on that. Uh, there was a lot of pushback originally that the the size and the cut of that crossbreed was not desirable. Or all the processors but so far that's worked out for some uh, and that's an alternative that would be an example of people getting into something a little different.
1: As a dairy educator I have young people come to me every day can I farm can I do this and I tell them yes what would you say to these young people?
3: I would say definitely yes and it's No different than us here or you folks in the room. You have a passion for what you do, Uh, and that's really what's going to make some difference. But the advice I give is to try and work closely with a mentor or two people that you can respect and don't be afraid to travel. You got to get outside of your comfort zone. It can't be just farm next door or the home farm, and maybe it's out of the county, out of the state, or out of the country. I know a lot of the progressive dairy programs in college, typically have an internship in New Zealand or some other country to try and help broaden their horizons. So I think those are two great ideas. And by the way, have fun at it. If you can't have fun in what you do every day, there's no sense going that route. So the big part I'd say is having fun with it.
2: I would say tell them your path might be indirect. Uh, And I'll use a, a young producer that's recently relocated to our area from another state. Started out as as a cow trader, he he bought and sold replacements, things like that. He uh, he came from a dairy family, grew up on a dairy, but uh, the family had been through some financial duress. His father had exited the business. He got his start as as a as a cow buyer. You know that's that's what he did. He built his equity through that business. Gradually worked his way into owning his own dairy, and, and expanded. So the path may take a little different direction than just walking onto a place and, and uh, managing a milking herd.
4: I, just to, to tag onto that, I mean, it, I, I tell young um, folks it's, uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? It's gonna take some time. You need experience, you need to build some equity, you need some help along the way. Name a business where you, you can get started in it with very little equity. You can't do that. So why would you expect to be able to do it in a, a dairy or any other kind of ag business? So, but it starts with, uh, starts with experience, starts with building up some equity and some liquidity, and then, and then figure out the path from there. But there's a big future for young people that want to get involved in this business. As somebody trying to hire somebody with an ag background to come in to loan money to farmers, they're like unicorns, you can't find them. So I think that's a a, a big benefit, just having that passion and desire to get into the business, you already gotta step up on everybody else. Yeah, we
3: have standing uh, a- applications if anybody's interested to work uh, <laughs> as a lender.
0: Stop, us too. Truck driver, you want to milk cows? I'll take applications too. All right, we appreciate your time so much. We thank Micro Technologies for sponsoring this segment and to Sam, Matt, and Roger for sharing their decades of expertise with us and for your very thoughtful questions. We appreciate you spending this hour of Expo with us and continue to enjoy your time here. Hopefully you found this Q&A session as valuable as I did listening to it and putting this episode together. And again, if you want to listen to more Expo seminars or virtual farm tours or Expo in Español, if you are a Spanish speaker, recordings of all of those educational components of World Dairy Expo are available year-round on our website. Or on the World Dairy Expo YouTube channel. So these are a great resource if you're looking for some learning opportunities this winter when things are maybe a little slower around the farm. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you.